Thank you all very much. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. It's good to see everybody uh, here, and it's honestly good to be back and just worshiping in the church. Um, we are going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is, I think, an incredible passage. Um, I picked it for a reason. You'll hear about it later. Let me pray now, though, as we turn our attention to God's Word, that, that He would do something great today. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you because uh, we can't do anything of our own initiative. Like, you are the author of everything that is good, and I pray that we would understand that more as a result of our time studying your word today. God, I pray that your spirit would um, convict us. We'll talk about conviction, Lord, and I pray that we would see conviction as something that comes from you, and it's, it's a joyful privilege to have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. and so, so give us conviction, Father. Father, most of all, what we want today is that we would, um, we would look a little bit more like your son Jesus and have your disposition toward the, toward the lives that you have given us as a result of our study of your word today. And so, Father, help us in all of these things. Help us to acknowledge that, that we don't have it figured out, that, that we need your help to, uh, just to, to live unto your glory. So God, help us in all of these things, and I, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily to follow me. Let me say that again. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily to follow me. That doesn't sound easy, right? I mean, that, like, that's, that's hard. Like, keen grasp of the obvious, but, but man, that, that's hard. It, it, it doesn't sound terrible, but it does sound terribly difficult, right? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. That, that right away is hard. Like, I, I live for myself. <laughs> like, I don't deny myself. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily. When Jesus talks about taking up his cross... This, this is before he's taken up his cross, but the shadow of his cross is looming. Like, he, he knows exactly what that means, and, and he is talking to people who understand crucifixion. You must take up your cross daily to follow me. All of this is to say, and this is not the only place that it's said, the Christian life is not for wimps. It, it is not for the faint of heart. It, it is not for wilting lilies. Like, Jesus is calling us to something that is actually incredibly challenging. Paul is fully aware of this when he starts to write his letter to the church in Thessalonica. Let me just give you a, a little running start into this. Prior to writing 1 Thessalonians, which we're going to be studying today, Paul was stripped and beaten in the town square in Philippi for casting an evil spirit out of a fortune-telling slave girl. And then he was run out of Thessalonica by an angry Jewish mob in the middle of the night. Then he went to Berea, and he was run out of Berea as well. Then he went to Athens, and then he went to Corinth and planted the church in Corinth. Now look, if you've been here for any length of time, we've studied First and Second Corinthians for two years, you know what a dumpster fire of a church plant that was. Like that's maybe the hardest thing he did. I'd rather get beaten in Philippi in the town square than plant that church. It was so hard. I mean, like, this stuff is a beatdown. Now, to add on to that, two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15 or 16, something like that. And it says that my job is to equip you people, you who are believers in Jesus Christ, to do the work of ministry. And the word ministry there literally means in the dust laboring. So my job is to equip you so that you can labor in the dust amongst other people. That doesn't sound particularly great either. So the question that you wake up almost every day asking, if you're being really honest with yourself, this is the question that you ask. When you wake up, you say, is the juice worth the squeeze with Christianity? Am I going to live for my own comforts and my own ease just like everyone else in America does? Or am I going to dedicate myself to living sacrificially for Jesus Christ? And if so, how great's that juice? Because the squeeze is pretty significant. You see what I'm saying? That's what you ask. That, that's the key to obedience or disobedience. You're, every day you're waking up going, is the juice worth the squeeze? Here's the juice. This passage tells you how good the juice is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Remember, Paul is coming out of a ton of suffering. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. In the midst of a lot of suffering, Paul is thankful to God because God is doing great things. That's, that's the first thing that you need to... He, in fact, it says, we thank, and, and we thank is the main verb of this whole passage that we're going to be covering today. So verses 2 through 8, the main verb is we thank, and the main clause is we thank God always. Everything else is modifying we thank God always. So, so this whole thing is about Paul's thankfulness to God. The whole text is about thankfulness to God for what he has done in people's lives and what he is doing in people's lives. Yesterday, we had a, a small group conference, and it was to prepare all of the small group leaders who are, are about to start leading small groups at Grace Bible Church. I don't know how many people were here. I, I think there were 450 people invited. I mean, there, there's a lot of small groups going on. And Travis Hill got up here, and, and he preached for a, a good long time. And you could tell that he was trying to fire up the small group leaders. I mean, he was, he was working himself into a frenzy. He was working the crowd into a frenzy. And, and at one point... Travis, full of enthusiasm, said the small group leaders at Grace Bible Church are 100% responsible for the disciple-making culture that we have. Now, we've been 20 years trying to develop this disciple-making culture. And, and Travis went on to say the pastors, this pastor, is not responsible for the disciple-making culture, that, that you, the people who are leading small groups, you, the people who are investing in disciple-making relationships, you are the people who are 100% responsible for the disciple-making culture. And I remember I was sitting right out here, and I was like, do I agree with that? My answer is, yeah, I 100% agree with it. If you're talking about you, the, the people of God doing the work of ministry, rather than me, the pastor, who would be responsible for doing all the work of ministry, I couldn't do it. It better be your responsibility. So I, I agree with him there. 
But then I was thinking to myself, are we giving God enough credit? Are we giving God enough credit? Because isn't it God's job to change lives? And, and so then you start thinking, who is this slightly built Travis Hill pastor guy? <laughs> the guy, like, can we really trust him? You turn sideways, you lose sight of him. <laughs> you know, he's, he's like the Kevin Durant on Grace Bible Church staff. He's like that. Can we trust him? Can we trust him? You can trust him. I think he crushes his job. He's fantastic. Here's the deal. We are 100% responsible. And God is 100% responsible. And now you're thinking, well, that's 200%, and there's no such thing as 200%. Like, can we trust the bald guy? That's, that's really the question. Because 100% and 100%, that doesn't work, really, right? And, and so here's, let me ha- explain how I'm doing this. God is 100% responsible for enabling the change in us and through us that happens in disciple-making. He is 100% responsible for all of the enabling of change. And we are 100% responsible for all the enacting. So God has enabled us so that we can go out and make disciples. God gets all the credit. He's the one who has enabled all of it. That doesn't mean it's not our responsibility. We don't sit passively. We actually step forward into the causes that God has given us, and the cause that he has given us is to go and make disciples of all the nations. Because God changes lives, we should be a people who are eager to work hard to make disciples, because our labor is not in vain. That's ultimately what Paul is saying. He's like, man, I'm so grateful to God for all the change that he has done in your life. The underlying text there is, I continue to get up after beating after beating because I know that God is at work. And I'll continue to do the work of ministry, even even if it's challenging. So, God has enabled the Thessalonians to work hard, but what has God produced beyond a work ethic that makes Paul so thankful? Because he's really thankful here. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. You're going to see what this labor in ministry produces. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he, God, has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about what Paul is thankful for, specifically from this passage. Paul is thankful for transformation. Isn't that what you saw in verse 5? Verse 5 is all about transformation. Starting in verse verse 4, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. When the gospel comes in word, that means that we understand it, but it's more than that. It comes with power, power to change people's lives. It it comes with the Holy Spirit, like that we are new creations in Christ. It comes with full conviction. All of these things speak to transformation. All of these things speak to changed lives. Let's talk a little bit about 
full conviction. When it, when it says that the word came not just, or the gospel came not just in word but in power but with the Holy Spirit and then in full conviction, what does it mean? The word conviction means complete certitude. It means full assurance. Like the idea that God has given us conviction means that we are held by the certainty of our beliefs. I want you to think about that. A convict is someone who is held in a certain position. A convict is confined to a cell. Conviction, same word, is when we are held to our positions, to, to the things that we have believed that are true. Conviction is an inescapable belief. Let me ask you a hard question. Does your confidence and joy in the gospel root you, root you to the purposes of God? You know, we, we talk about the Christian life being hard, and it is hard. But I don't know that it matters. I want you to think about this for a second. If we are men and women of conviction, that, that we are held in a certain spot, whether the Christian life is easy or whether the Christian life is hard, it doesn't really matter because we're convicted. Like, it's who we are, and so it's what we do. Like, we're going to follow Jesus, whether it's popular or unpopular. That's who we are, and so it's what we do. We're going to make disciples, whether people like it or not, because that's what God has given us to do, and we're convicted that that is the mission for which we are still drawing breath, and so we get after it. Not to try to earn God's love, but because we're certain of God's love, and we're not going to be swayed by the, the winds of the world. It's who we are, and so it's what we do. Paul is thankful for transformation. It's the spirit, it's conviction. It's the word that comes with power. Paul is also thankful for relational disciple-making. You, you might not have seen that. It's a little bit harder to get to, but look at verse 5 and 6. Because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And of the Lord. I could have said God is thankful for imitation or Paul is thankful for imitation. I could have said that. But really what we're talking about here is relational disciple making. Here's what I mean by that. Christian maturity does not come from just the conveying of doctrine. Like, I'm, I am for theology, I am for doctrine, but the reality is, I'm not going to make you mature when you come to Grace Bible Church and just you listen to me yammer on about the things of God. Like, I, I'm for that. I've been doing it for 30 years now, but I promise that will give you lots of knowledge, but it won't give you transformation. In order for you to really become mature in Christ, you've got to spend time in my kitchen. And I'm not inviting you all over for dinner. Okay, like that, just get that out of your mind. Some of you, yes, but not all of you. It's not that big of a house. So the, the point is, I can give you doctrine from the pulpit. I, I can maybe impress you from a pulpit, maybe, sometimes. Sometimes I can be horribly unimpressive. 
But unless you're in my life, unless you see how I'm raising my kids, how I'm loving my wife, how I'm thinking about work, is it, is it for my glory or is it for God's glory? How I go out and play pickleball or spike ball or whatever it is that I'm playing, am I doing it to stroke my own ego if I win or like my ego is just dashed if I lose? And I lose a lot these days. Or am I doing it for the glory of God? All of that stuff, you got to be near enough to me to really be an imitator of me, to, to really get that kind of stuff out of it and, and to know at least what godliness looks like in me. Now, I'm not saying I'm the pinnacle of godliness. I'm not. But I promise you're not going to know whether I am or not unless you're up close, unless you're working with me, unless you're recreating with me, unless, unless we're having meals together. And that, that's what he's talking about here. It's relational disciple-making. He's saying, you've got to be close enough to imitate me in order for God to really use our relationship to transform you. That's, that's what the passage means. The, the word imitator is mimites. It's where we get the word mimic, actually. Christianity, when it, when it says that you became imitators of us and of the Lord, Christianity, by, by that statement alone, and Daniel talked about it last week, and he did a fantastic job. By that statement alone, you should know that Christianity is caught every bit as much as it is taught. And you got to figure out how to get into relationship with committed believers so that you can learn from them, so that you can mimic them, so that you can be imitators of them as they imitate Christ. And I promise, if you're using this as an excuse not to do that, there is a very low ceiling of maturity. And you're going to bump up against it. You're going to have a lot of knowledge, but you're not going to see how that good information about God fleshes itself out Monday through Saturday. I promise that's what he's talking about. Paul is thankful for transformation. He's thankful for relational disciple-making that people would know each other so well that they become imitators of each other as they're all trying to imitate Christ. And then Paul is thankful for transcendent joy. Verse 6, 7, and 8. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith, but by, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. When I think this is so important, and I think Paul is thankful for this. When people find joy in the gospel, even in the midst of suffering, Paul looks at that, and he's like, I love this. Now, let's go back just a little bit. From what type of circumstances is Paul writing for Thessalonians? He's been suffering a lot, right? How do the Thessalonians know how to have joy in the midst of suffering because Paul's been close enough that they would mimic him. So I think this and the last point are absolutely interrelated. Joy in the midst of suffering is something 
that you catch, that you see in other people and you're like, wow, that person's faith matters. That person's faith is significant. I would say to you, and this is just my pet theory here, joy in the midst of suffering coupled with, and this is unrelated to our text today, an ability to forgive people who have wounded you, who have hurt you deeply. Joy in the midst of suffering and a willingness or an ability to forgive people, to extend grace when people have hurt you, those are probably the two greatest evidences of genuine faith that I can think of that exists that we can see. Like I, to me, if you can forgive people who hurt you, you have received the grace of God and so you can extend the grace of God I think you understand the grace of God when you can forgive. And if you can have joy in the midst of crappy circumstances, horrible circumstances, I think there's something there. I think that demonstrates that your faith is authentic and real. I think when the world sees that, they go, whoa, there's something different about that guy. There's something different about that lady. I don't think their God is abstract. I think he is near and personal and profound. Verse 7 says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Their, their joy in the midst of tough circumstances made them an example to all of these people in Macedonia and Achaia. And that, that's a big region, just so you know. The word example in verse 7 is, is tupos. It's where we get the word type. Now, I want you to think for a second about an old-fashioned typewriter, not, not your computer typewriter. That, that doesn't work. Think of an old-fashioned typewriter where you hit a key, a J, an L, a B, whatever it is, and when you hit that key, it, it triggers a lever, and it, it sends this lever screaming toward the page, and it hits the page, and it leaves a mark. That's what a typewriter is. That, that is this word. You should understand when you push the key, it activates a lever and it strikes the paper and it leaves a mark. This is what we're talking about. Joy given by the Holy Spirit in the midst of hard circumstances. Not just marks us, not, not just marks us. The point here is that it leaves a mark on the world. They look at us having joy in the midst of hardship and they realize we have something that they desperately want. It is one of the most attractive things about genuine Christian spirituality. Do you have that? Do you have a faith that enables joy in the midst of the hardest circumstances? Do you have that? Is, is your faith conceptual? Is it abstract? Or does it enable you to weather with dignity, with grace, and even with joy the worst storms in life? I want for everybody in this room to have a faith that gets you through the hard times with such joy. You don't just survive it. There is something that people see and they're like, man, their God must be real. I've, I've never known a God who, who feels that near. That's what we're looking for. Next question. What does all this 
transformation? What is, what is all this imitation, this, this relational disciple-making? And, and what does all this joy and suffering end up doing? I've already talked about a little of this. Look at verse 4. We're going to kind of work backwards. I skipped to verse 4. I did it intentionally. Verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because... Now, you need to know that we've already covered everything that comes after the because. Because of verse 5, transformation. Because of the end of verse 5 and 6, imitation. And then verse 6b through 8, joy in the midst of suffering. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. It proves you're chosen. The the word for chosen is ek. Ekloge. Ekloge. Now, here's what's interesting about it. It's, it's, it's tough. I'm, I'm not blaming the translators. Ekloge is a noun. It's not a verb. It looks like when you look at verse 4 that it is God who has chosen us, and it, it, it seems very verbal. It's, it's not a verb. I, I get why they translate it as a verb, but it's, it's not a verb. It's a noun. Ekloge means election. Ek means out from, logos is to speak, and basically God spoke out from others a people for himself. Ekloge, election, could be selection. So here's how verse 4 goes. We know, brothers loved by God, your election. Your election. Because of transformation, because of imitation, because of joy in the midst of suffering. The transformation of your life, your growth through disciple-making by imitation, and the joy that you have in the midst of all sorts of circumstances doesn't earn you salvation. That's That's not true at all. It proves the salvation that God has, by grace through faith alone, given you. It's, it's a demonstration of the reality of your salvation. Those things demonstrate the fact that God has chosen you. That's the first thing. Verse 8 gives us the second thing. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I I want y'all to know that this is why I chose to preach this passage today. You'll understand it here in a second. Verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say a thing. What verse 8 tells us is that your lives are a bell from which the gospel rings. Now, if you don't understand that, you need to understand the word sounded forth. The word sounded forth is exacheo, exacheo. And it's translated well, sounded forth is great. Ex means out from, and acheo, where we get the word echo, means to roar. It, It means to sound forth intensely. So exacheo is to sound forth intensely out from something. 
So, so our lives are like a bell, and, and our lives are a bell from which the gospel rings. This new creation status, the fact that we have been transformed, the fact that we are committed to making disciples, the fact that we have joy in all of these circumstances, even that are really hard, and nobody would ever understand that. All of that comes from a new creation status. And by that new creation status, we demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we're like a bell. And, and the world hears that bell, and they're like, what is that? And they see something different in the body of Christ. They, they don't see a bunch of hypocrites. They see people living differently, loving tenaciously, like convicted, where they can't just chase the world in their insecurities trying to blend in. They stand out because they are convicted by the Holy Spirit and they live differently. And it's a bell. And they're like, what is that? What? How is that? And I promise, it is the most compelling thing you'll ever see, this bell ringing of the gospel. It, it's, it's like we become a signpost that God's kingdom is near because we are being transformed and it, it makes people long for the absolute transformation that we will all experience one day in heaven. And that, that's our privilege. And you can understand then why God hates Christian hypocrisy. Because what, basically we're like, oh yeah, we're a bell, but we never want to make a sound. We want to look just like the world so that nobody can ever hear anything. And God's like, what the heck? Why would I save you that you wouldn't be a beautiful bell ringing my gospel by the way that you live? Like, you've totally misunderstood the gospel if you think that is the purpose for which Jesus mounted a cross to die. I picked this passage honestly because of verse 8. I think it's an incredible passage on disciple making. But I want to conclude today just by saying thanks. Saying thanks to the Congregation of Grace Bible Church. As most of y'all know, my mom died two weeks ago. And the body of Christ, and that's, that's you, the body of Christ has collectively been a tangible demonstration of the nearness of God to me and my family. Um, and it's been pretty amazing. I've, I've been simultaneously incredibly sad and also incredibly encouraged. Uh, people have lived and loved sacrificially. People have come alongside in humility. I bet I've gotten 400 text messages and dozens of letters. Not one, not one has been off-putting. Not one has been glib or like spouted off something that was annoying. Like every single time I've received any sort of note or letter or visit or whatever, it's been immensely helpful. Immensely helpful. 
what I've seen over the last two weeks isn't just a bunch of nice people. I've met some of those as well. It's been 20 years of Jesus enabling and empowering people to end the dust labor with people who are hurting. And it just happens to be my family that's hurting. And I promise you, in the midst of the sadness that we've experienced, we also have experienced the nearness of God. And people, here's what people make a big mistake on. They either think that we're going to feel God's nearness or people in the church are going to be nice. And you feel God's nearness through the people of the church. Like, when it says that we are the body of Christ, we are the physical, tangible expression of the love of God. And I promise you, you can understand that abstractly in pleasure, but the body of Christ, you collectively, become the tangible demonstration of the grace of God when things are hard. And God has enabled the gospel to sound forth intensely. Y'all have been a beautiful bell. God has proven his goodness and his nearness in large part through you. That's why Paul writes this. He's, he's thankful that in the midst of his suffering, persecution, he has seen a tangible demonstration of the gospel's power in the people of God. That's why I chose this passage, because I feel the same about y'all. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, on our best day, we're all still sinners, and I get that. But on our worst days, the collective body of Christ is beautiful and powerful and I'm so grateful for your nearness as demonstrated, as evidenced just through the tangible expression of love that the body of Christ gives when people are hurting. God, I pray that we would know your nearness through the church. Father, I pray that we would see your nearness through transformed lives through disciple-making relationships, and it would result in a joy that transcends circumstances. Father, you are a great God. You have sent Jesus to save us, and we are so grateful, Lord. I pray that our salvation would not be abstract or theoretical. I pray that it would be transformative. It would be profound. And it would transcend all circumstances. God, we love you. We're so grateful. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.